Ann Arbor Holiday Inn. Okay, well, as you know, as you might know, events information is brought to you by current magazine, Ann Arbor's Entertainment Monthly, available at many locations around town. Events info can be heard daily in the morning at 1.30, 4.30, 7.30, and 10.30, and also at 1.30 p.m., 4.30 p.m., and 8.30 p.m., right here in WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Okay, well, that wraps up my show, so please stay tuned for um, Living Writers. www.wcbn.org www.wcbn.org Visit us at www.wcbn.org and listen to us via streaming mp3 or quicktime. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have in the studio with me Alexander McCall-Smith. Alexander, may I call you Sandy? Yes, Would certainly. You... Yes, T. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's what many people call me. Alexander's always shortened to Sandy in Scotland, or not always, but often. Oh, I wonder, actually, I didn't actually know that that, so it's yeah. not Alex or Alec, it goes to you Sandy. You can be called, well, you can be called Alex, Alec, Eck or Sandy. And it's, <laughs> did you have a choice in going with Sandy or is it just no something choice. that no, happened? That happened. Pre, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before you were able to have many choices. I yeah, was, very I few people have a choice about their names. They, some do, but uh, for most of us, it's, uh, it, it, it's chosen by others and nicknames are also chosen by others. It must be awful going, going through life with a nickname that you don't like. Um, we're, we're, we're a bit better about that these days, don't you think? We used to be rather bad. We used to have uncomplimentary nicknames for people, cruel nicknames, but that stopped. Yes, and maybe, and maybe it was actually more prevalent over, over. I don't know, I want to say in the British Isles, but maybe that's <laughs> not true. Maybe in America they were also, but I always feel like when you're watching some of those 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 films, maybe from the, mm. like, I don't uh, early 1900s, or, you don't know, it just seems like... Uh, yes, I, uh, I think I think probably it was it was worse in Britain. I, I don't know what the American uh, patterns were, but so certainly it was it was quite bad. I, I remember uh, when I was at school that uh, there were some quite cruel nicknames that people went through life with really, and they were they were known through through their life as Tubby or Fatty or Chubby or whatever you know, which is these days I don't think that 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 happens or Shorty. You know, that's, that's the right. one that I was Shorty. Yes, yeah, it's 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 very unkind, and it almost seems like it's a strange um, elitist thing to have a nickname. It almost was more prep school driven. Or... It, it was quite an elitist thing. Yes, yes, people had those uh, nicknames. Some of them, of course, weren't uh, weren't really um, uh, in in any sense disparaging. Uh, some of them could be com complimentary. 
but uh, a lot of them weren't complimentary, and I think that must be that must be a difficult. I, I knew somebody who went through his entire life called Tubby, and the only person who who didn't call him Tubby was his mother, who called him Arnold, which was his real name. <laughs> Everybody else used the nickname. <laughs> and even that wasn't much of an escape for him either. He's like, no, why couldn't it no. have been? <laughs> well, I would have thought cho- choosing between Arnold and Tubby, with all due respect to any Arnolds who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah I've, got, I've known some good Arnolds, Arnies, right? Um, oh, yes, yes. But, well, I can see that we're going to have a good a good hour of conversation, Sandy, already. Um, if you're just joining us, Alexander McCall Smith is in town. His latest novel, The Uncommon Appeal of clouds, um, Sandy. You'll be reading at Nicholas. Yes, I, I'm. I'm doing an event at, at Nicholas. I tend tend to talk rather than than read. I do. I will maybe read a little excerpt from from one of my books. But generally speaking, I think authors shouldn't read their readings. Why? What? Well, I remember going to a, a book launch once some years ago where the author read for forty five minutes nonstop, and we couldn't sit down because people didn't. Well, there were no seats. Um, and I think it was the most dreadful experience. It was, uh, it was, I'm afraid, a very boring book. And 45 minutes of it was about 44 minutes too, too much. <laughs> so uh, I'm very careful about that. People were, you know, having to pretend to faint to be carried out, uh, rather uh, as used <laughs> to happen when uh, the Emperor Nero played his fiddle. Apparently, people had to pretend to die because that was the only way in which you could get out of the performance to, to escape. Yes, it. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe. <laughs> To be revived somehow later to come back from the dead. Yeah, yes. Somehow to explain it. Just te- tem- temporary, temporary death. De- that's yeah. Mm. That's often convenient. It's a near-death experience, but one. <laughs> 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 well, you you're a bassoonist, yes, then, and you've actually you you started the really terrible orchestra. Is that well? I'm 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 a very bad bassoonist. I'm <laughs> I'm one of the worst bassoonists in in Western Europe, if not the worst bassoonist in Western Europe. I'm I'm a very very amateur bassoonist. It seems like a point of pride. Well, it's not a point of pride. It's it's more a, a matter of uh, realism and recognition. You know, I think that one must rec- recognize one's limitations in this life, and uh, my limitations. Um, I have many limitations, but one of them is not being able to play the bassoon very well. But my wife and I formed this orchestra called the Rarely Terrible Orchestra about 15 years ago uh, when we realized that there was a call uh, for an orchestra for people who couldn't play their instruments, uh, a sort of unmet need for those in, 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 in need of uh, musical sustenance. And we set this uh, orchestra up, and it's been a tremendous uh, success. Uh, we're very popular. We're probably the best-known bad orchestra in the world. We've been on tour. We've made two CDs. And maybe on 60 Minutes, too. Uh, or so, I think we've been played on, on many, many distinguished radio programs uh, throughout the world. It's extraordinary. And there we are, a bunch of complete amateurs who have great difficulty uh, getting to the end of the piece together. In fact, it's very, very rare that we finish at the same time. Uh, the orchestra tends to sort of tail off at the end. and we, we uh, Indeed, there was one occasion when uh, two sections of the orchestra were playing uh, different uh, pieces. Uh, there'd been some sort of administrative uh, problem <laughs> and uh, the conductor had to stop us and he said there was a problem. It was discovered that different sections were playing different tunes. 
Yes. And and so someone couldn't say it was deliberate and it was experimental in nature. You just sort of... uh, Well, you you can get that effect. You can sound like uh, Stockhausen if you you do that. It's a deep experiment. Yes. Well, anyway, I just, I love the sound of that and the the bassoon. And we started off with a a bit of the, the clarinets. Was that... Actually, Sandy, can you remind me, was that Mozart? That, that was, was in, indeed Mozart. And, and that's um, on the first page of your book, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds. Some discussion of genius and Mozart's name y- is banned. Yes, about. I, um, Mozart, I, I often I often mention Mozart in, in my books. Uh, one of the reasons, possibly, is that uh, while I write, um, I tend to listen to music. And indeed, when I write the uh, Isabel Dalhousie books, I, I usually uh, play uh, Mozart's um, uh, Soave Seal Vento, the trio from Cosi Fantuti, which is such a lovely piece of music, uh, which contains within itself such marvellous resolution. And uh, so uh, that might be the reason why Mozart comes out in the text. So, so there's a mention in this book about, um, about genius and uh, Mozart's uh, undoubted musical genius and how difficult it must be to be the sibling of somebody who's a genius. So Mozart had a sister, and uh, I'm told, and uh, that can't have been much fun being, um, being that. No. Also with the gender challenges of the time, I'd imagine. Too. Well, yes, uh, adding, <laughs> adding con- to it. compounded. A, yeah. a, 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 exactly, yes. Mind you, the, those, those gender ch- challenges, it's interesting how quickly those have been dismantled in, in so many societies. And now I think we're, we're getting to the point where, where boys are the disadvantaged uh, gender and uh, actually having to be, will have to be protected in, in some way. I mean, it really is quite striking uh, because they're... they're, they're uh, they're so eclipsed now by by girls, and their confidence is gone. Uh, the suicide rate amongst young men in the UK is much higher than it uh, than it used to be because these are boys who who really c- can't see a future for them for themselves because uh, all that they would have really if they're not going to do very well educationally would be their strength, and there are no jobs for for people requiring strength anymore. So it's a, it's a very it's a very tricky issue. This uh, mm-hmm. we've corrected the injustice against largely corrected, not entirely corrected, but largely corrected the injustice against girls. And now we discover that 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 boys are, are are failing, which is which is quite interesting. It, it is. It is. And it also seems like there's been per, the precursors to this with looking at how um, men maybe in the footballer culture and, and not hmm. having outlets and maybe the rise and like the, the violence or hooliganism or, or hmm. so not being having other outlets. Maybe oh, yes. Um, well, we, uh, we had a as you may recall, uh, a couple of years ago, there were those serious riots in in Britain. They were they weren't really, we, we didn't have them in Scotland where where, where I, yes. I live, but the, uh, down in London in in England there were those dreadful riots which which took everybody by, by surprise, and suddenly we we realised that there were an awful lot lot of principally young men uh, who really uh, had no sense of, of of a future and no sense of in in, in involvement in, in in society who I suppose really had been encouraged by commercialism to see their their, their, their only uh, identity as being the, the, the purchases of, of goods clothing and things like that yes and of course what they did was that. they went off and and, and uh, broke into the stores and took the the, the, the the trainers and all that sort of stuff um, Markers the, of identity. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and it, it's it's it, it is it is very, it's very sad, and I I think that there's there's a sense in which, uh, which which our society is is seriously broken, 
uh, I think that's a very it's a very serious problem, and uh, we're we're reaping the results of that really. And are you so? Are you developing, or do you have any characters, sort of, that are starting to percolate in your own, um, your mind and imagination, that are are kind of living in this or dealing with no, this issue? No, I, I don't know. Interestingly enough, although this is a subject in which I have have an interest, um, my books tend not to deal with social dysfunction. Uh, and to be populated by strong female characters. Well, they're strong female characters, uh, but uh, I think they're, they're also populated by people whose lives actually really are quite positive and who, who don't actually have a lot of, a lot of uh, problems. Um, so I think that that's, that's just the sort of fiction that I, I, I write. Now, I think that there, there is a lot of concern in contemporary fiction with, with dysfunction and, so, uh, and social pathology and psychopathology generally, um, but that's not the area in which I, I, I write. And I, th- I think that in a sense, if one portrays society as just being composed of that, then I think that that presents a distorted picture. It's a very important problem. It's a very important issue. But I, I suppose my, my novels are, are, are more concerned with people uh, leading, leading more positive lives than that. And so when you find yourself, when you're creating these, these new um, scenarios in the, the series, it's, that's what's coming to you. Like these are the, the imagined worlds. And, uh... Yes. Well, to a certain extent, uh, I, I, since I have various series of novels that, that already have their setting and their world created for them, so the world of the number one ladies detective agency of Mara Matsui, that's, that's, a, that, that's an already existing world which is, uh, which is a very positive world. Uh, I've got the world of Isabel Dalhousie in this particular uh, series. So these, these are people who are established in that um, uh, that world, that sort of fairly uh, functioning world, um, they aren't people with uh, with great uh, great difficulties. They do they do think about the difficulties of others. I don't ignore uh, things that are wrong in society. It's it's just that this, this is not what I'm exploring in these novels. And that's why Isabel is also like, uh, concerned with moral philosophy. So yes. that's sort of the out, the the outlet for that. Yes, she she's a she's a moral philo- philosopher. She runs uh, a journal of uh, of applied ethics and uh, she's concerned with uh, a lot of practical day-to-day issues in in life and and how we how we are to lead our lives really which is this great question which i suppose most of us like to think about uh, in her case she thinks rather a lot about it in that she thinks of all the difficulties that uh, that uh, one can encounter in leading a, a reasonably moral life so little issues for example can you read somebody else's postcards now that is that's something that you might think think might be uh, not particularly important but for many people that might be a little moral problem that they encounter when they're visiting a friend and they see a postcard <laughs> sitting on the table you don't read other people's letters no, but can you read their the postcards, postcards. It's, oh, interesting you know issue. the you know the postman does but well let's take, well <laughs> <laughs> let's take a short break and then we'll be back and we'll grapple with this a little more today in the studio alexander mccall smith is here his latest novel the uncommon appeal of clouds he'll be at nicholas to Tonight at seven, we'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today on the program, Alexander McCall Smith is here. His latest Isabel Dalhousie novel, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds. And tonight, Alexander McCall Smith will be reading and speaking, actually, rather, um, at, at Nicola's and probably signing books, too. Yes, indeed. Um, yes. So can you tell us a little bit about that last piece we, we just heard, the musical interlude? Well, that's that's a wonderful instrument called the the, the, the Kora. And it's it's African music. It's uh, Malian, and there's a marvelous uh, musician playing it, Mamadou Dibate, and it's uh, it's very very bright. It's it's got this lovely bright quality to it. That stringed instrument. Uh, he makes his own instruments. That uh, instrument he would have made himself. And uh, I recently um, was privileged to meet him. I was at uh, Duke University uh, a week or so ago, and uh, they they very very kindly had a dinner for me, and they invited him to play at at this and uh, he was a most engaging man with that wonderful wonderful sound it's 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 quite complex music and it's it reminds me to a certain extent of Klausach music in Scotland which is a sort of harp music very similar and indeed he said that he had, had toured Scotland and that he'd found that he he had quite a lot uh, in, in common with the local musicians uh, playing uh, playing Celtic music and um, so um, Oh, how lovely! Yeah, no, it it is lovely. It's 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 immediately you want to dance. There's some some music that you you hear, and immediately you're energized. It 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 lifts the spirits. And is that also that bright quality then that you mean? Is that or is that a separate like how it actually well, sound I, waves or so? I, I think the, the the bright quality is is particular in uh, Malian and indeed also in Senegalese music. There's a very similar tradition there, um, and that's uh, that is something which uh, there, there's that brightness of sound which is presumably produced by the the steel strings or, or whatever it whatever it is that they 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 use uh, but there's something also obviously about the the, the rhythm which uh, encourages uh, mm. one to to dance i mean there are certain forms of music where you can't really sit still for uh, i think of that particular music uh, there's another <laughs> tradition of music in further south in 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 africa in lesotho where they have a marvelous tradition of music where where they use uh, um, uh, and accordions have been uh, integrated into their, their local traditions there. And when you hear that music, you just really want to leap from your chair and and dance. So uh-huh. it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very nice. I'll have to look out for some of that. Do you have any favorites to recommend? Uh, in what respect? In, in terms of that, that sort that of music? Of, yes. yes. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I, I do have, I, I have some recordings of that, that pursuit of music, but uh, I've forgotten what they're called. Oh, okay. so I well, can't well, <laughs> no, well, never mind. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you where you can hear a little, little strain of it, uh, and that's in Paul Simon's Graceland uh, album, uh, because uh, Paul Simon uh, worked with these musicians from that particular tradition, and you'll hear it in one or two of the tracks mm. on on that. Then I have uh, there it, it is. Then. Yes, okay. and it's and it's it's very and danceable. Can, yes, uh, it isn't. I mean, there's some there's some music which has the opposite effect, which which makes you want to sit down and or go to sleep or whatever. <laughs> Or is. cry. Or cry. I mean, the worst <laughs> sort of music, in my view, is this awful, bland, 
piped music that you hear, for example, on uh, aeroplanes when you get onto the aeroplane, and there you hear this dreadful, trashy, banal piped music, and you just really want to get off the aeroplane. Because uh, it feels like it's assaulting your soul it's a little bit. so dreadful, so <laughs> banal. Whereas, uh, I, I must say, um, the... Um, Music that was chosen by British Airways as its theme music was 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 really really beautiful. The Flower Duet they played that with all their advertisements and they played it on their airplanes. And of course that calmed you down because when you get on an airplane you want to be calmed down. You want to sort of sit back and and feel this is all very dreamy. Cloudy music needs to be right and that sort of thing. That's actually smart. It's, it's smart to do use across the ad. But I think you might be biased too. No, just well, no, no. I I, I think. It's <laughs> It's just a question of why they why they play banal, uh, completely banal wallpaper music. Uh, it's the same in in restaurants. You go in and your your senses are assailed by this dreadful din that they're they're playing. Nobody's really listening to it. it, it, it this is music that anesthetizes you. you. It's anesthetic music. It's it's all played by anesthetologists. <laughs> yes, that's probably true at the dentist's office or, or the, well dentists um, the music that you should have in dentist uh, in a dentist's office would be very reassuring as well just very very quiet or so, yeah something something nursery music something which really isn't going to disturb you at all i haven't thought about dental music maybe the, one should produce a cd saying music for dentists <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's long, long overdue. It's a, a niche market. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. But, um, but Sandy, actually, it reminds me of uh, your website actually has music on it, like the UK and US version of your website. Yes. And, mm. and there's a question and answer section there that... Um, where you have one of uh, you have one of your most beloved characters answering questions that um, people can write in with, and then also the author, and it's I love that there's so many layers of opinion there. <laughs> yes. I, now I can see maybe why if someone were to ask a musical question, for example. <laughs> well, I'm always uh, happy to give my views on subjects about which I know very little. <laughs> <laughs> But it also is, it's great that these characters of yours, I could tell earlier before the break, um, Sandy, this tenderness that you have for Isabel as you were speaking about her. Um, and is that part of the reason you choose, or maybe, I, I, I mean, I wonder if you do choose your creative work, but to inhabit these worlds and to make it a serial so that she returns, because you do have these tender Yes, well, I, I think that the interesting thing about serial fiction, where you've got a whole series devoted to one character or a set of characters, uh, is obviously that you can have a much longer acquaintance with them. So you know them uh, through the, the, the passage of the years, and you can see them develop, and you, there's a certain familiarity. So when you go back to writing the, the annual contribution to that particular series, you feel this is somebody you know, you're just sitting down with them again, and you're, you're wanting to find out uh, what they've been doing over the year. Do since you do you this were... annually for each of your yes, series? Yes, I, I, I do. I, I write about four or five books a, a year, which is, is breaking all known rules of publishing. Most known rules of publishing st state one book a year, and maybe not every year, but I, 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 do a, I do a lot. So I've got my Botswana series, the number one ladies' detective agency series. I've got my 
Isabel Dalhousie series, the Sunday Philosophy Club series. I've got a series uh, called Forty Four Scotland Street, which is a which is a real serial novel, and the chapters are are, are written and and published in in the Scotsman newspaper before they come out as a book. And I've got a Corrui Mansions series and and so on, uh, Portuguese Regular Verb series, which has nothing to do with Portuguese Regular Verbs, but nonetheless. And uh, so each of these I I visit uh, I visit regularly. Do you have then with your your process? Do you have each of these worlds um, existing, or do you sort of enter into one and draft the full? The, y- how would you work with these? Well, I threads? I have, but but because of the the, the number of books that I, I I've agreed to produce, I I have to have a have a, a reasonably firm timetable as to as to when I'm going to write which book. So at the moment, for example, I'm working on volume 14 of the uh, Maramatsui, the Number One Daily's Detective Agency series, and uh, I'll have to finish that by the, the the middle of July. So I don't have have really very long to 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 write it in, and then I will go on to I'll start the next the next book, which will be the next Isabel Dalhazy book. So I write them, I tend to write them sequentially, although there will be occasions when I'm writing more than one book at a time. So at the moment, uh, I'm, I've just finished the, the, the volume 10 of the Scotland Street series. I have started the next Maramatsui, but I'm also writing uh, a book, uh, a, a, sta- a standalone novel. So you, usually it's two books, at least two books at the now, how, same time. How did this standalone novel manage to to get in there, <coughs> to get some attention? Well, it's it's uh, I, 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 if I have an idea, so I've, I've got a standalone novel coming out in the in the United States in, in June called Trains and Lovers, and that was, uh, that was rather an interesting story behind that. I was uh, approached by a railway company in Britain to to do uh, a number of short stories that they would then print as a little pamphlet and give to the passengers traveling on the train between uh, London and Edinburgh. And uh, of course, from an author's point of view, that's a wonderful request because you've got a captive audience. They can't really, you know, they're there and they're being given the stories. And I so enjoyed that. And they they said, could I put a train into each of these stories? That's what usually happens if you're approached by a railway company to write write a story. They often say, a, uh, any chance of a train appearing in it, and uh, I, I agreed to do that. And I so enjoyed those stories, I decided to make a full novel of it, and, and that's Trains and Lovers. So it really is the idea, I have an idea for a book, and then I feel that this is something that I really want to write. And uh, so uh, I'm doing, I think in, in the future, I'll do one self-standing, standalone novel each year, in addition to my series. So when do you sleep? Well, I do. I do sleep. I mean, I, I, I'm very fortunate in that um, I manage uh, to write quite quickly, and I'd have to write quickly in order to, to do this. So um, I uh, find that I, I write about a thousand words an hour, which is the the general um, uh, general approach that I have, and that means that if, if I'm writing two or three hour, hours a day, then that's two or three thousand words a day, which obviously will build up. I mean, that within a within a month would be the, the length of a, a full full length novel so I um, that's the way I, I work uh, before I do, you start writing Sandy mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt don't forget where you were but are are you um, do you have a map do you have some sort of uh, like a structure that, that a, a very a very general structure um, it's, it's usually very very skeletal so I will have a general notion of what the book is going to be about 
about. But I, I'll be prepared for it to change quite radically uh, as I'm writing it, in that uh, I think uh, the important thing there is that the fiction comes from, to a very great extent, from the, the subconscious mind. Subconscious mind is always interrogating the world, making up stories, asking what-if questions, which we're doing all the time without not nece- without necessarily knowing about it. And uh, so uh, what I find as I start the book, uh, and then it, it, it grows quite organically, actually, which is quite nice, because I think that you can tell when something has organic uh, growth in it. It, uh, it. it may meander a bit, but it may meander in a, in, a, in, a, in a pleasant way. And so things will happen that I haven't planned. So often, even the skeletal plan that I have, I will deviate from. Oh, well, that's, this is lovely to hear and also heartening t- to people to know that they can just produce and produce mm-hmm. and, and not feel like, well, I, yeah, because it's kind of amazing. If, if someone were to go to your website right now and just see the sheer number of books <laughs> that are there, now I understand why and how you're managing yeah. to do it. We're going to take a short break today on the program on Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Alexander McCall Smith, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Stephanie, Stephanie in the engineering booth. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on Living Writers, Alexander McCall Smith is here. Uh, his latest novel, an Isabel Dalhousie novel, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds, is on the table with us. And Alexander McCall Smith will be tonight at Nicola's. Sandy, how about that last piece oh that's a (laughs) lovely piece of music that uh, that really is that's that's wonderful african singing uh the group singing there were lady smith black and bazo and they're quite well known they they've toured the united states for example so they're known in this country and they do that uh, spectacular a form of uh, poly, poly, polyphonic uh, singing. It really is absolutely lovely. Um, Shosha Lotsa uh, is quite a well-known uh, tune. Uh, it's uh, a Zulu tune. The words are in, in Zulu. And, and effectively what the, what the tune is saying, the message is, let's all pull together. That's the, the the message of it, and it was. Uh, it's got a certain rhythm to it, uh, which you, you you will have picked up there, and that's the. It's it's meant to be the sound of the the train taking the the men off to work in the in the mines. The train. Uh, it's the train, yes, because the miners in 
women in South Africa uh, came often from far away and they were taken to the gold mines and around about Johannesburg and uh, this is the this is the, the the train Zulu is a very onomatopoeic language so there are a lot of a uh, lot of words in Zulu which are onomatopoeic which sort of represent the noise made by the thing they're describing and that is a that is a, a, a lovely uh, song it's been adopted by um, uh, South African rugby. You may recall, well, I don't think you you will recall because people don't really follow rugby very much in the United States, although I gather that's changing and increasingly people are taking an interest in that sport. But there was... But maybe that Mandela movie. Well, it it may be. I haven't seen that, but I wouldn't be surprised because, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because I don't know whether they deal with that scene where he went to the World Cup final. They do, do they? Yes, I believe so. If Ah, well. Then that's right. Now, what actually happened? I haven't seen that movie, but I I remember watching that little excerpt of that. uh, uh, In fact, I I think I watched the whole thing of that that rugby rugby final World Cup. It was very very important for them because it came at a very um, important time in the in the in the history of of the new South Africa when it had emerged from its its very difficult period, and it was uh, there was a lot of hope. And uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, who's obviously a very, very great man and who preached reconciliation and and and, and forgiveness, really, in a, in a most spectacular fashion. Uh, he went along to that uh, rugby uh, final and it had been regarded as a sport with which African people themselves hadn't been particularly associated. And so this was a real gesture. And uh, that was uh, that was a song that they they sang. And uh, it's 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 had uh, it's had quite a life uh, since then as a as a sporting uh, anthem it's it's a lovely piece of music and it's very soulful and it's 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 gorgeous i re- referred earlier on to the the effect the physical effect that some pieces of music can have that has a, a, a marvelous moving effect on on one one doesn't actually want to dance but you want to sway there i think uh, if i hear shoshulots i start to sway just not too much but a little bit in either direction it's very very nice. Um, another uh, another form of music which I I find um, very stirring is is Scottish pipe music, bagpipes. If you hear the bagpipes, you you feel something running up your spine. I don't know what it is, but bag bagpipes uh, have a distinct spinal effect, <laughs> and um, you can't you can't be indifferent uh, to them. But that African music is is something which I I particularly like because I spent my childhood in. Zimbabwe, and uh, so I was uh, obviously there um, exposed to, uh, to 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 certain African influences, the the the, the music, the sight, the sounds, everything about it, the 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 the, the, the world around me, uh, and that I think has been very important in my writing of my Botswana novels, uh, because uh, I do uh, tend to stress the importance of place in my novels. They they take place in very clear. Uh, circumstances in very particular places, and the and the country is usually a character in the in in the books. Um, so uh, again, when I I mentioned that I played Mozart when I r- write the Isabel Dalhousie novels, when I uh, write my uh, African novels, the uh, Botswana novels, uh, I will often play things like that. Uh, a song that you've just heard. Uh, there's another wonderful East African musician, Ayubagada. I play, um, and that 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 uh, puts me in the mood to to write these things. 
Ah, well, it's I, it's lovely. Could we hear some from the uncommon appeal of clouds? Uh, yes, I I'd, I'd read you a little a little <laughs> excerpt if you if you like. Um, it's uh, it's uh, uh, difficult to choose um, excerpts, and and I, I hope that I I get the uh, the right um, the right one here. Um, uh, Isabel, just a bit of. Um, uh, background. Uh, I mentioned earlier on that I- Isabel is a, a moral philosopher to trade. She runs this journal of applied um, ethics. And uh, one of the things that she finds quite difficult is dealing with the papers that are submitted to her as editor of this journal of applied uh, um, uh, ethics because of the uh, she knows what's at stake for the authors of these um, these articles. There's this tremendous pressure, as you'll, you'll know, in the academic world uh, to publish. And uh, this means that people, um, their career can depend on whether a particular piece of scholarship is accepted by a journal if they're applying for tenure, for example, and, and uh, it's turned on, then that could have a very adverse effect on their whole, whole career. So Isabel's very, very aware of this and she takes this this job of selecting the articles quite uh, quite seriously here she is a little excerpt in which she's uh, talking about that and thinking about her editorial role she got up from her desk putting aside the paper she'd been trying to read there was nothing wrong with the paper itself which was a discussion of responsibility to future generations there was no reason why it should not see the light of day The author was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto and needed publications for the next stage of her career. Isabel knew just how competitive the academic world could be and just how easily people could fall at any of the fences that stood between them and a career as a philosopher. She was aware that the author would be waiting anxiously for her verdict and that a positive answer would lead to the popping of champagne corks, real or metaphorical, in some apartment in Toronto. All that was required was a one-word email, yes. One word, three letters, that would bring such joy to somebody she'd never met and probably never would. And by the same token, no, would have the opposite effect. She'd found it difficult to concentrate on the author's argument. We obviously can owe duties to people we do not know. Yes, of course we can. So what is the difference between people who do not yet exist, future generations, and people we do not know? Well, thought Isabel, one set of people exists and the other does not. So the author continued, the essence of the problem is whether one can harm the non-existent. Or is it? Isabel asked herself. Surely the non-existence of the victim at the time of the harmful act is not the real issue. The real issue is future harm to people who will exist. Eating fish, the author wrote, is a good example. We know that if we eat fish now, fish stocks will be depleted and there'll be not enough for the people who follow us. So does our current hunger or current taste for fish justify using up fish stocks that would otherwise be enjoyed by people as yet unborn? Do we owe any fish to those who follow us? The paper asked us. Do we owe any fish to those who follow us? The sentence struck (laughs) Isabel as vaguely comic, as if might have been lifted from some music hall song. It was redolent, perhaps, of, yes, we have no bananas. (laughs) (laughs) I remembered that line. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you, Sandy. It's an interesting issue about responsibility for future generations. It's something that philosophers are, are quite uh, concerned about. And I think that we're probably at a general level in society much more aware of that than when we, we used to be. I mean, when I when I grew up, there, there seemed to be limitless supplies of things. There were enough trees, there were trees all over the place, there was enough water, there was enough space. And now... Fresh everything. air. And fresh air. Well, water, you see, water's an interesting thing. Uh, I've just been down uh, at uh, Duke, as I mentioned, and I met uh, um, Jim Seltzman, who's uh, one of, a professor there, and he's just written a, a book on drinking water and the importance of drinking water, and he makes the point that we're going to have a tremendous amount of conflict in the future about about water. Water, access and also, to water. And also, he makes a very interesting point about how water is being commercialized, that we used to, it used to be accepted that water was something that people had free, but now, of course, it's put into bottles, and as the bottles appear, the drinking fountains are going mm-hmm. and so so we water is is being taken into commercial ownership rather than being something that we could share with one another uh, freely right. which i think is quite an interesting thing will air be next <laughs> <laughs> It's a thought, isn't it? Oh, goodness. Not a good one, Sandy. Not a good one. But so, so it's interesting to me that you chose that particular piece to read, too, because it's showing us her empathy and how she's also um, someone whose life is always intertwined. It yes. seems like, like, what does she owe the people around her well, that's that they right. ask of her? That's, that's one of her, her central issues as, as a, a philosopher and indeed as, as a person is uh, what, 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 does she, uh, what does she owe to others? What is the, the limit of her moral duty to others? Because I, I think that's a very, very interesting issue for all of us in our lives. Obviously, we, we owe something to other people, but uh, where do we draw the line? Because if we said, oh, well, we must, we must uh, deal with suffering or, or want uh, whenever we know, uh, come into contact with it, we'd actually have no money left ourselves and we wouldn't have any time for our own projects. So we obviously have to decide the point at which we'll say, that's really not my affair or I can't do anything about that. And for many people, that's quite hard. I find it quite difficult if you if you walk past a beggar. Now, there, what do you do? If you're in a country where there's no safety net and you walk past a, a, a beggar, you know that it, it's, there's probably real need there. That's different from, say, the urban, the urban, many of the urban beggars that we find in, in advanced societies, richer societies where you, where you actually have a social welfare net. That's a different, different matter. But or, or uh, whether they can navigate the net, though, is whether they, another question. There's, but anyway, there's, I don't mean there's that. that. No, that I mean that is it is a big issue. But I'm just to raise it as an example. I don't think it's a simple, a, a, a simple issue. But for many people, there is an issue whether they're going to walk past or whether they're going to. Give, give, give something, and then you think, well, what, what is the money going to be used for? Is this going to be spent on drugs, etc., or alcohol, or you know, all those issues? So it is a real practical problem. But leaving aside that, uh, let's say you, you, there's, there's a charity collection for a clearly legitimate char- charity, and you're walking pa- past, and you've got a couple of extra dollars in your in your your pocket, do you put that into the collection box for what might be a totally worthy charity, or do you say, well, you know, I can't carry on giving all the time, or do you do you have a policy say, well, I'm going to give so much, uh, and then uh, then I I, I will uh, then look after myself. 
So th these are very, very, very difficult. And our duty to friends is another thing. What do you do with your friends, your heart sink friends? Because I believe that we're all allocated a few real, real lame ducks. We get them. We get them. You know, we get one or two. I can see that this is... Say, dear, dear friends. Yeah. Lame ducks. But it is, it, it is true. We all get a couple of lame ducks. And these are people who are rather heart sink friends. And we know that we've, we've got to do something to support them or cheer them up or to sort them out, etc. What's the, what's the limit of that duty? And how do well, you save someone? Yes, if they, yes. I mean, and, and, and can you get rid of them? Can you actually, can you divorce your friends? Can you say to your friend, look, I'm terribly sorry, but actually we no longer have anything in common. That seems terribly cruel, but we've got to protect ourselves. So uh, what do we do? Isabel thinks know. about all of that. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's take a short break, and we're gonna we're gonna think about this a little bit. Perhaps you will too out there. Um, Alexander McCall Smith is here today. His latest novel, *The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds*, tonight um, at Nicola's at seven o'clock. So you can put that on your calendar. You've got *Living Writers*, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Um, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Alexander McCall Smith is here. His latest in Isabel Dalhousie series, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds. Um, so that mu music is so vital to you, and it's part of your creative process, as you've told us, Sandy. And and this piece of music, uh, immediately, you could just see you respond to it. <laughs> yes, well, Mozart, uh, I, I respond to, to everything that Mozart wrote, really. He was such a wonderful musical genius, just extraordinary. The music poured out of him, absolutely marvelous. And it seems that maybe you also respond very deeply to W.H. Auden. Oh, I do. Yes, yes. Um, Auden was my uh, is my fav favorite uh, poet, and certainly my major literary enthusiasm. I, I've t just written a book about Auden, Auden that uh, Princeton University Press is going to publish in 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 the fall called "What W.H. Auden Can Do for You," and it's all about uh, Auden's work and my personal discovery of Auden. Um, how I got to know about about his work. Give us a preview, would you mind? Well, it's it's it. it uh, I don't have a copy with me, but uh, it it really um, deals with, uh, I suppose, Auden's 
uh, vision of the world, uh, how he responded to the the challenges of his time. So it, it, it's it's something about how we how, how we respond to uh, uh, the, the 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 challenges of our age, and it also tries to explain what the the real appeal of Auden is, and it is a, a, a remarkable appeal. You may recall. Uh, that um, some time ago, some years ago, there was a there was a f- film called Four Weddings and a Funeral, and there's a at the funeral scene there, uh, there's a marvelous uh, reading of uh, Auden's uh, poem Funeral Blues. Stop all the clocks. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a very uh, a, a very striking poem, and that introduced a whole lot of people who hadn't necessarily heard of Auden before to to his work, uh, which was a was a great thing. It, it it just resonated with people; they were so struck by it. Another example of how his work really got through to a lot of people who may not otherwise have been familiar with it uh, was after nine eleven in New York. Uh, there's uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, poem that Auden wrote, uh, September the 1st, 1939. And people uh, were so struck by this poem, which which has a, a very dramatic uh, effect. Um, and ending. And, and ending. Uh, the, 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 the be- and beginning, and of be- course. <laughs> uh, I, I sit in one of the dives on, was it 52nd Street or whatever it is. Um, he's he's in, a, in a bar and... and uh, and he he thinks about the expiry of of a low dishonest decade as he calls it but that that poem provided comfort for people after that appalling um set of events um in uh, in new york and uh, after the the world trade uh, trade towers attack people actually faxed the text of that poem to one another and took comfort from it so auden can still um, I think speak to uh, to to people who who may not um, uh, may not be familiar with his uh, with his work. He speaks to us uh, there. He was writing in the in the late uh, 1930s, but he still seems fresh, and what he says still seems so relevant and important to our our lives. And he had such a wonderful range of of, of work. Um, his marvelous. Uh, his marvelous uh, poem uh, "Lullaby," lay your sleeping head, my my love, is I think one of the most bu- beautiful, uh, beautiful poems to to eros uh, in the English language, and so uh, I I read this book, and um, I hope that it will it will perhaps help some new readers to come to to, to Auden. Uh, I quote Auden a lot in my books. Isabel Dalhousie, one of my characters in uh, in her in her books, it's also often, her favorite poet. It's well, it's so happy. <laughs> Yes, it's extraordinary. <laughs> I actually find that I agree with Isabel on about 100% of subjects. It's a most most amazing coincidence. I also agree with Mara Matsui on 100% of subjects. But uh, I had a letter from um, from uh, Orton's literary executor, uh, Edward Mendelssohn, Professor Edward Mendelssohn, who's a professor of English at uh, Columbia University in New York. And he wrote to me out of the blue some years ago saying that he thought that W.H. Auden and, and Mara Matsue would have agreed on all issues. And so I was uh, I was very uh, pleased to get this letter and I, I subsequently met him in New York and I wrote him as a real character into my Isabel Dalhousie novels. I have Edward uh, giving a lecture in Edinburgh uh, 
uh, on the sense of neurotic guilt in the in the works of W. H. Auden. And then the following year, I actually brought him over to Edinburgh, where he gave in real life the lecture that he had given in the book, which I thought was uh, was tremendous fun. But uh, no, Auden Auden is is such a wise, humane voice, such a wonderful, wonderful poet, and there's there's comfort and. And, and and interest for for everybody in the works of uh, of Auden. And and on to go back to your website for a moment as well, because I think you have these picture galleries where I was able to see that story where the the professor came over. Oh really? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, so do you do you? And there's also a, a, a for example a picture um, in Botswana of the a ten foot python like you with. Oh yes. Ten, so. Yes. <laughs> And yes. then, then you and sort of a canoe and then elephants and like. So are you not? Are you not picking these then? Is no, that part no, of a, a sort no, of a marketing? The, the, or? Well, I, I've I've got a, a a wonderful wonderful team of of people who who do who do all sorts of marvelous things uh, for me. And uh, I think things like websites are. Uh, I can't claim any credit for for that. I'm I'm familiar with that picture of the python. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's. Uh, no, those those things are usually done done for me. Well, it's probably because you're writing. Yes. Oh, yes. So, yes. So there's no <laughs> time to create the website. Would so you actually you won um, a, a, a writing contest for a children's book when you quite early on. Yes. And is that when you became sort of made this decision? to make writing more like a larger part of your week or yes so. I, th- I, th- I think so i think i think that was the the point at which i i had the first glimpse of the possibility of uh, of being a writer uh, in that uh, like many people i i had had written a b- bit before that but not in a very organized way and there was a literary competition in uh, scotland and uh, run by the publisher Chambers, and I uh, entered two manuscripts in that. Uh, one was a was a novel, and then one was a children's book. and And uh, I obviously was hoping that I'd win the the category of the novel, but I didn't. Uh, but I was uh, winner of the children's book uh, um, category, which I hadn't really thought that I would write uh, children's children's books. But that led to um, my being invited to write more. And so I wrote over thirty children's books um, in the in the in the next f- few years, and um, I enjoyed that. But I felt that I probably had had done enough of that, and I was writing more short stories and radio plays and things like that. And uh, then I started to write uh, novels, and I started uh, with the Number One Ladies Detective Agency, not realizing that that actually would be the the the, the novel that changed my life really, and. Which enabled me to uh, to become a full time uh, writer, and of course that didn't happen immediately. Uh, that uh, took a few years after the publication of the first one before they really caught on, and then they they, they caught on in in a fairly major way. And I was then in a position to say, well, I could continue with my um, my my main career, which had been as a university professor of of law. Or I could be a full-time writer, and I, I thought that it would be interesting to to be a full-time writer, and I really wanted to do that. So uh, that's how it uh, how it came about. 
And how did that first with um, the the your detective series, the the very famous one with the 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 number one ladies yes. detective? How did did you have a character? Like, what sort of image was it? Something, or did you hear a voice of a particular character, or a, was well, it music that brought you no, there? <laughs> I, I I had lived and worked in Botswana, and uh, I thought that I would I would write about. Um, about a woman uh, in Botswana and about her life. And I hadn't thought that I would make her a private detective. These books aren't really these books aren't really mysteries in the conventional sense. They're not really. It just so happens that Mara Matswe is is a, a detective, a private detective. She she doesn't deal with crime. She deals with people's problems in their lives. So she's a sort of she's wise. Uh, agony aunt, and she's very wise. Um, so really, the, the the books are about about her, her friends, and the country, really, more than... Uh, so there are no bodies. We don't have any of, uh, any of that. There are, no, there are no big issues to be, be, be solved. She, she has little issues that she needs to deal with. Uh, but I thought that I would write that about um, a woman in Botswana, and that's the way it, it came out. And then I found that I, I, I really liked the characters. She's, she's a very sympathetic character. She's a very comfortable character. Uh, and uh, I think people responded very well to her. Uh, I was quite surprised at, the, at the, the impact that she seemed to have on people, and that's because she's such a nice woman. She's a very, very fine woman, Mara Matswe, and, and I think people were also very interested to hear a positive story coming out of Africa, a story of, of, of uh, uh, somebody leading a, a good and productive life in, uh, in uh, uh, an African country, because we we're used to getting the negative uh, angle on Africa. And we're so used to that. And some insight into community, too, because if you're saying she's concerned mm. with these, because it is like these day-to-day -day kindnesses or yes. things or, or not that that make up our, our world. Uh, well, I, I, th I think that that's right. I, I think uh, that if you look at our modern world, um, we're at risk of becoming quite alienated because uh, globalization is happening. And so our lives, we're increasingly losing control of our lives. Um, the things that we have about us are no longer local things, things that we've made or somebody we know has made. These are things that have all been made elsewhere at a great distance. And so life is being prepackaged, presented to us, and many people feel uncertain as to where they fit into all of this. And they're, they're losing community, they're losing their sense of connection. Of, of connection. Uh, and that, I think, is really, really serious matter. And that's why my, my books are all about the very local uh, sense of place that we, we have. They're about day-to-day uh, -day life and love of place, of one's own place, and friends, colleagues, people that you, you meet. It's a celebration of, of community. And I think we have to battle to, uh, to preserve this because it's under great, great threat. I mean, in, in, in all areas of our life, look at architecture. Look at the scale of contemporary architecture. These great, big, flat-faced buildings, soulless, like the Lubyanka uh, created, uh, where in the past there was 
um, small-scale architecture, architecture uh, on a human scale that we could relate to. We knew where the doors were, where the windows were. Now we've got these big soulless buildings. And that's that's just symptomatic of of something which is happening in all, all aspects of our, our lives. So part of the mission of these stories, and for, for example, the uncommon appeal of clouds, um, is to have Isabel Dalhousie think through some of these things and to be in the place where she really is. So. Uh, I think I think that's right. I, you know, I don't I don't have a have a strong agenda in my books. It's not something I don't sit sit there and say I'm going to write about this particular problem. But that's what tends to come through because those are concerns of of mine and my Scotland Street series as well is all about a very very local community and connections between people uh, living in the same street or building. Sandy, next time you come to Living Writers, we're going to have bagpipes. Oh, yes. Oh, that'd be wonderful, <laughs> well, yes. Thank you so uh, much for being on the program today. And we should mention again, you're going to be at Nicola's uh, Bookshop at 7 o'clock tonight. Um, so thank you for being here. Thanks th- thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Stephanie and Michelle. Um, Alexander McCall-Smith, The Uncommon Appeal of Clouds, and so many more books um, that you can check out and enjoy. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, April 17th, 2013 in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, more details emerge about the bombing at the Boston Marathon as an FBI investigation continues and local residents plan memorials, vigils and other responses to the attack. In Washington, lawmakers unveil an immigration reform bill. It provides a path to citizenship for some, but draws criticism for increased militarization of the border. And we'll go to the West Bank, where Palestinians protest indefinite detention in Israel, and concern grows over the health of long-term hunger strikers. Those stories and more coming up. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Officials continue to investigate the twin bombings at the Boston Marathon Monday. Boston police posted on social media that widely circulating reports of a suspect in custody are not true. More fragments of the so-called pressure cooker bomb have been found. Officials have identified the third victim as Lingzi Liu, a Chinese graduate student at Boston University. The two others have been identified as 8-year-old Martin Richard and 29-year-old Crystal Campbell. The FBI has found a second letter containing the toxin ricin at a male screening facility. The letter was addressed to President Obama. A third letter to an undisclosed addressee is also being tested. The FBI says it does not believe the letters have any connection to the marathon bombing. 
The Supreme Court ruled unanimously today that U.S. federal courts do not have the jurisdiction to hold international companies 